John 11, 25 through 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm getting sick and tired of hearing about that Huckleberry teaching. <laughs> you guys never talk about me like that. <laughs> We're gonna have to do something about Mackie. <laughs> because I opened this sermon that way unplanned, we should pray. Jesus, Jesus, it seems that those who got to walk with you most closely got to see you reveal yourself in new ways again and again. And they always tended to think they got it, and then they were always undone when they realized how incredible, how huge, how majestic, how good you really are. And so as we look at yet another name, yet another way you revealed yourself, may we be undone or undone all over again at who you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so I, I want to open with two true stories. Um, the first one is about my brother-in-law, Van. Uh, last January, I shared a story about him and the miracle of his survival fueled by prayer. He had had this horrible heart diagnosis come quite suddenly in his mid-30s, and uh, his life was very much threatened and hanging in the balance. And uh, today, he is the only patient in the history of Vanderbilt Hospital to uh, have the combination of surgeries he had performed on him and survive them. It was a miracle. Honestly, I cannot remember ever seeing anything like it with my own two eyes before or since. And I've seen some things. I mean, like, I'm not a traveling faith healer, but I am familiar with the wild side of God. What I haven't shared as broadly is what happened since then. When uh, a number of months ago, the mechanical valve that saved Van's life failed, and it became infected and covered with bacterial growth, and they gave him, at most, just a few weeks to live. That was in March of 2022, so uh, at the very month that my son Amos's life was in the hands of surgeons as they repaired his tiny little heart, Van's life was in the hands of some other surgeons as they attempted, now for the third time, to repair his failing heart. He needs immediate surgery, and this surgery has a much higher likelihood of, uh, of killing him than it does saving him, but it's the only shot we got, so we got to take a shot. And then what followed was an insurance nightmare leading to delays in scheduling this surgery, and in the meantime, plenty of people are wanting to pray for Van, and he's letting them. I mean, why not? 
It was much more than just a why not for him, though. He, he really did have this sense that God was going to heal him supernaturally, that the pain he was feeling in his body was somehow going to be repurposed for a spectacle of God's glory. And that was not a sense that he had the first couple of times he had been down this very road. And so all of these like ultra-charismatic faith healery types are coming in and out of his home like it's a revolving door, praying their best and most energetic prayers, and nothing's happening. Where are you, God? I'm waiting. Finally, the week of the scheduled surgery arrives, and because of the pessimistic prognosis, Van Surgeons tell him, you should live this week like it's going to be your last week, because it most likely will. He decides to go to church with his parents that Sunday. He attends a different church uh, in another part of town, but thinking this could be his last Sunday, he wanted to sit in church with his mother and father to honor them. He hadn't been to this particular church in more than a decade, and he happened to know that his parents had asked everyone who would listen in their church community to pray for him. But when you're the one carrying the pain, Sometimes people, well-meaning people, especially people you don't know, inserting themselves into the most sensitive part of your story can feel a whole lot more like an intrusion than it does like a help, even when it's given in love. And so Van asks if they can kind of be as anonymous as possible. So they sneak in just a few minutes late to a seat in the back of the balcony in this particular church. And then as he's singing the first verse in the opening worship song, Someone who's a total stranger to him walks in and says, excuse me, are you Van? And he's like, yeah, and he's like, oh, there's this guy in our church community that's gotten really interested in healing prayer. Would you mind coming with me? And so Van slips out of his seat uh, that he had anonymously chosen. He walks into where this older man is sat on the front row of the church during the opening worship song. And he said something along the lines of, hey, you're really interested in healing prayer. Van has a debilitating diagnosis in need of healing. <laughs> I'll let you guys talk, you know? And, and Van said that this guy's looking at him with what he can only describe as like a deer in the headlights look. And he laid his hand on Van's chest and he began to pray. What again, Van's words, not mine, was the worst prayer I have ever heard. He said he was timid, he was obviously nervous. Van went from maybe God wants to heal me to I feel so sorry for this guy. What, I'm gonna try to encourage him afterwards. Um, and then in the midst of that prayer, Van said something happened. My chest began to burn. And like with a different kind of sensation than I've ever felt before. But it was like I was on fire. And then this guy just says, amen. And the burning went away. And I walk back to my seat in the balcony thinking, did you just heal me, God? So uh, uh, then the van has to do some scans and this part of the story is a little bit complicated but it was a second set of scans at the hospital that had done the original scans to see how much growth has developed in these weeks we've had to wait for the surgery. What exactly are the surgeons dealing with now? We need to get an accurate picture of that before we get in there. But the surgery's happening at a different hospital. So he goes in for the scans, gets the scans done, and then three days after the scans, he gets a call from his doctor, Van, you have no infection. 
We must have misdiagnosed you to begin with. And Van says, no, 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 look at my previous scans. He says, I'm looking at them right now, Van, side by side. One of them shows that your heart is covered in bacterial growth. The other shows that there's none at all. I don't know how to explain it, but you don't have an infection. And Van says, Jesus healed me. And the doctor says, well. <laughs> and he says, well, what should I do? And he said, I would suggest you celebrate. And I'll see you in six months for our regular checkup. The surgeons at the operating hospital, though, they don't believe them. Yes, I see that the recent scans are clear, but the operator obviously got these wrong somehow. You have a failed valve covered in bacteria in an infection. You need surgery or you will die. So Van's in a bind. What am I supposed to do here? Who am I supposed to trust? Maybe there was an error on the scans. I don't know. So he goes in for the surgery and he begs the doctors, can you please do another scan before the surgery just to confirm that, that a miracle of some kind hasn't happened and they refuse. That would delay the surgery. We'd have to reschedule the whole procedure. We're booked for months. That's going to be too late. It's now or never. And so Van goes into surgery. They cut him open no infection. The surgeon sews Van back up, comes back into the recovery room with his tail tucked to tell him, we didn't do anything. Nothing's wrong with you. I don't know how this is possible, but something must have been wrong with the original scans. And Van's relaying this whole story back to me through tears and through laughter. And he says, you know, of course God would do it like that. Of course, God would bypass all the prayers of the experienced healer people to wait for this one timid old man who wanted to know if God was still into the things that he seems to be doing on the pages of scripture and use the worst prayer I've ever heard in the most miraculous way I've ever experienced it. Of course, God would do it like that. Second story, um, Caleb, a, a close friend of mine, lived in China for a year, and while he was there, he walked out of his flat one day and he turned down the sidewalk, and as he turned, he saw a little boy riding his bike, about 10 years old, just get hit by a car. And so Van rushes up to the scene of this accident. This boy was biking with his father. The car did not see them, and the car was driving fast. The boy's splayed out on the street. He, he appears to be lifeless. The father's in complete shock. An ambulance speeds up and takes the two of them off to a hospital. And Caleb couldn't just proceed with his day. I mean, how could you if you just witnessed something like that? And as a follower of Jesus, he also couldn't shake the fact that that maybe he was meant to pray for healing in moments like this. And so he just goes to the nearest hospital on off chance that he might find these people there. And he gets into this conversation with the receptionist and he says to her through a translator, I know this is going to sound crazy, uh, but, but there was a boy who was in a bike accident. I, maybe he got brought here. I believe my God can heal him. Will you take me to him? She's hesitant, he's persistent. Eventually they bring the boy's father to Caleb. Caleb explains the whole thing to him through the translator. He allows Caleb to see his son, who at this point his deceased body has to be pulled out of a drawer where he is awaiting transfer to the morgue. 
And so it's Caleb, a medical attendant, and this boy's grieving, shocked father in this room together. And Caleb lays two bodies on the, or two hands on this deceased boy's body. And he says, Jesus, you say you're the resurrection and the life, so bring resurrection life. Jesus, you say you're the resurrection and the life, so bring resurrection life. And it went on like that a few more times. And then they all walked out of the room disappointed. I am the resurrection and the life. A name of Jesus that can be heard both at revivals and at funerals. A name for miracles and a name for grief. A name that gives us faith for the miraculous. And a name that offers comfort to the grieving. Knowing God, that's the title of our current teaching series in practice. Moses asked God, speaking to him from a burning bush, what is your name? And God responded, I am, or I am who I am, a name that Jesus then picked up and used again and again. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. That's the ground we've covered so far. Seven distinct times in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am, and then adds a little bit more description to that first, I am. And up for today is, I am the resurrection and the life. So I'm going to ask you to follow along with me in John chapter 11 in your Bibles. Everywhere else we go in Scripture will be up on the screen for you, but our anchor is John 11, so I want you to look with me on the page there as we track the story together. Uh, We'll make our way through this story, but we're just holding on to a single theme. The theme is this, resurrection life. And that theme gets expressed in two ways, salvation and healing. That's a map for where we're headed. But first, let's set the scene. Jesus arrives at the ancient equivalent to a funeral. So look back with me at John 11. I'm gonna start up in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now that's an important detail because ancient rabbinic tradition held that a loved one grieving the loss of someone should visit the tomb after three days to ensure that they were really dead. So this is day four, which is John's Jewish way of saying he was dead. He was really dead. He was dead beyond all doubt. Now, Lazarus has two sisters, Martha and Mary. They're close friends of Jesus. And Mary and Martha are grieving the loss of his brother. And in their grief, they each say the exact same thing to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So they say the same thing, but the way they say it is entirely different. Martha says this to Jesus, standing on two feet, looking at him face to face, processing mostly intellectually. Mary says it to Jesus on her knees at his feet, processing mostly from her gut, mostly emotionally. So Martha is the one who runs out to see Jesus first, right when he arrives. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So so the biblical hope that builds and builds throughout the Hebrew Bible, or what we commonly call the Old Testament, is that God will send the Messiah, the Savior, uh, 
And through that Savior will come resurrection life. One day, even sin's most devastating consequence, death, will be defeated by this Messiah. And it's then that all who belong to him are raised with him and will experience true life, life like we had at first, life uncorrupted at its most potent and its most full. Keep reading. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. A number of scholars argue that that line is better translated. uh, The one who believes in me will come to life even though they die, which lines up with Jewish history and with Martha's hope. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus is affirming Martha's faith, but he is also locating himself as the foundation on which her faith rests. I am the resurrection and the life, meaning I am the savior who defeats death. I am the entry point into the fullest, freest, most uncorrupted sort of life. Your hope is exactly right, and I am the foundation of that hope. Do you believe this? Jesus is asking Martha, do you rest your grief and your hope right here? on the foundation of my life, of my person. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So she understands what he's really asking and she believes he is who he says he is, but as we'll later discover, she still did not perceive how close this life had really come. Next, Jesus speaks with Mary, verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. So Mary falls at Jesus' feet weeping. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary's belief in Jesus hasn't been shaken. She's not questioning her faith, but ultimate theological certainty does little to remove the current sting of her grief either. Have you been there before? When together forever in heaven one day does little to remove the grief that I feel on this day? When ultimate theological hope feels far off, but real life grief feels so close, like it's crashing into my rib cage. Jesus is deeply moved in spirit and eventually begins to weep himself. Now, why is Jesus weeping? I would argue it's not because he's grieving Lazarus's loss. I mean, in this very chapter, twice already, Jesus has said he knows that Lazarus will be raised. Jesus knows that there's a happy ending coming to the story that he hasn't said goodbye to Lazarus. What the passage says is Jesus weeps when he sees Mary and the others weeping. Jesus weeps over the chaos of sin. He weeps over the pain that has spread from the serpent's deception. He weeps over the embodied consequences of the curse that people made in his image cannot escape on their own and are trapped within. Jesus wept. A few years ago, I read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia with Hank before bed every night. And that was a little bit because I was trying to be a good dad, but it was mostly 
Because to my knowledge, I was the only living pastor who had never read the Narnia books, and I was starting to feel like a fraud. <laughs> and in The Magician's Nephew, which is the first book in the series, Diggory, the protagonist, approaches Aslan, a lion representing Jesus, with the question. You see, Diggory's mother is dying, and there's no cure for her condition. And so when he accidentally finds that he slipped into this magical world, he starts to wonder if, if this uh, lion Aslan, if Jesus might be able to offer a kind of healing that he can't to his mother. So he goes and asks, and this is the response. He had been desperately hoping that the lion would say yes. He had been horribly afraid that it might say no, but he was taken aback when it did neither. In the face of real critical life-threatening need, Diggory worked up the nerve to ask, and God was silent. In the face of real threatening grief that had come so close, hope was hanging by a thread if it was hanging at all, Diggory worked up the nerve to ask for that which he most desired to God, and God was silent. So I'm laying there on this really rickety Ikea top bunk that I myself had assembled (laughs) with Hank lying next to me reading a book about talking animals, and I start to weep. Because I know that this is a story about asking God for that deepest thing that I long for. About trusting him with with the desire that I hold most intimately. And about the perceived experience of unanswered prayer. I know that this is a story I've lived before and I'll live again. Diggory works up the nerve to ask Aslan a second time But please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up until then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. You see, in the shining tears of Aslan's eyes, Diggory saw grief, sorrow, and a deep, deep sense of care. And this little boy, Diggory, was an autobiographical character for C.S. Lewis. Lewis wrote this book actually much later in the Narnia series and then put it first. You see, Lewis, like Diggory, grew up with a single parent, and Lewis, like Diggory, lost that single parent, his mother, when he was just 10 years old. Lewis, a philosopher and a theologian, decades removed from that grief, is still processing potentially the most painful experience of his life, uh, and he's processing it through a fable. Like Mary, Lewis looked, looked into the eyes of God as he asked the biggest question. And he didn't get the answer he wanted or maybe any answer at all, but what he did see was the face of God. And that answered the question that sits beneath all of the other questions. It didn't take care of any of the why, but it answered how God feels about his suffering, how God feels feels about his sorrow and the character of the God that he's approaching when he asks. From Moses all the way up to Jesus, God is described again and again as compassion. 
a word literally meaning co-suffering. He is the one who feels our pain, who grieves alongside us, and who weeps when we weep. Let's keep reading. Verse 43. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It's the big finish, the resurrection. And the way Jesus did it was to call out in a loud voice. Surely the disciples who were standing alongside him remembered what he said in John 5, just six chapters prior. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will, will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. You see, in the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus is reaching back to a promise that he made in John chapter 5, and he's reaching forward to a promise that he will make in John 20, his own resurrection. Uh, the, the sign, the resurrection of Lazarus, is a miracle pointing to a person, Jesus. So here's the theme of the story. The miraculous supernatural intervention of God is a sign pointing to a promise. It's a sign, a real, tangible, supernatural reality that points to a promise, but it's not the promise itself. It's not the substance. Healing is a sign of the kingdom that points to salvation, the substance of the kingdom. Healing is a sign. Salvation is the substance. The sign points to the substance. Jesus says to the grieving, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he calls Lazarus out of his own grave. So there's hope right now. And it's not an abstract, far-off, sentimental kind of hope. It's a real embodied, here and now, hope in our midst. That's the sign. And then Jesus suffers, dies, is put in his own tomb, and walks out of that one. There's hope forever. There's hope that will never be taken away. And there's hope for everyone who calls him Lord. That's the substance. Let me break that down more clearly. There's one theme in this story, resurrection life. And that theme gets expressed two ways, through salvation and through healing. We need to take those one at a time. And I want to start with the latter, with healing. You know, the biblical story, it doesn't start with the body as this temporary cage that we're going to live in until one day we can get to disembodied souls and infinite bliss. It starts with the creation of embodied humanity as man and woman made in God's image and called good. Sin interrupts that goodness, and sin is an embodied problem. Uh, the effects of sin get into every aspect of creation. They get into our thoughts and our choices and our relationships, our desires, the systems of our society, and into our bodies. With sin came sickness, suffering, and death. So creation came with an embodied blessing, and sin came with an embodied curse. A blessing was given by God, and a curse was given not by God, but by a deceiver, by the serpent. 
God dealt with that curse by taking on a body in his resurrection. Jesus rose in a body, conquering every last one of sin's consequences, including the embodied ones, sin, suffering, and death, resulting in the promise that one day we will be raised with Christ and raised bodily. So heaven, according to Jesus and the biblical authors, is not an escape, it's a renewal. The renewal of the earth and the renewal of our bodies. For the wages of sin is death, says Romans 6. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, sin is an embodied problem and life in Jesus is an embodied victory. And all of that matters for us today because it means among other things that part of the ministry of Jesus Christ and part of the ministry of the church, the body of Christ, is healing. The healing of the embodied person as a preview of the promised future. Healing is a sign of the kingdom. I'd write that down if I was you. That, that's the only point I'm going to make today. I'm gonna to make it again and again and again. Healing is a sign of the kingdom. Let me color in a little bit of what I mean by that. First, healing is biblical. Like supernatural, miraculous healing is not some like flighty thing. It's all over the pages of the Bible. It comes before Jesus in the Hebrew Bible. For example, Abraham prays to, for Abimelech and his wife who were infertile, and then they were able to be healed, get pregnant, and have children. That's Genesis 20. Elijah prays for the son of the widow Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, and then in 2 Kings, Elisha heals Naaman. Healing continues to come through Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus opens the eyes of several blind men. He cleanses the skin of a few different lepers. He stops the bleeding of a hemorrhaging woman. He stands up a paralytic or two. He heals the children of multiple grieving parents. He calls Lazarus out of his tomb. And of course, then there's the matter of Jesus' own resurrection. And healing is something that continues in the New Testament after Jesus. Peter and John heal a lame beggar at the temple in Acts 3. In Acts 5, we're told that healing was so common that people tried to get underneath Peter's shadow just in case it might heal them. In Acts chapter 20, Paul preaches too long, someone falls out of a window, and then he heals them after the sermon's over. And in the chapter before that, we're told that the healing ministry of the church was so common that people were sending Paul's hankies in the mail just so people could touch them and potentially be healed. So healing is biblical. Second, healing is a part of the church's ministry. I mean, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and healing is a sign of that kingdom. Four out of the five times that Jesus tells his disciples to declare the message of the kingdom, he commands them to heal the sick in the same breath. It's a relatively common occurrence in the book of Acts, and it's listed as one of the spiritual gifts given to the church for the work of ministry in 1 Corinthians. The Bible doesn't shy away from healing or sensationalize healing. Healing is not extra special, and it's also not hush-hush. It's just another ministry of the church, just like preaching, wisdom, encouragement, prophecy, and so on. And healing is complicated. Healing is complicated because suffering is real and suffering hurts. And healing is almost always sought in the midst of suffering. And that means to ask for healing is to ask God to touch something that has, for me, become life-defining and make it life-redefining. And when God does that, it's a story we never recover from. And when God doesn't do that, it can be a story that we never recover from. 
See, some in this room, you've got a miracle story like Van's. And others of you have a disappointment story like Caleb. And I'd imagine that quite a few of us have some both. See, we live in this tension that theologians call the already not yet. Jesus has been victorious over sin and we can know that victory right now already. But the full experience of that victory we're still waiting on in Jesus' return, not yet. And over a lifetime of apprenticeship with Jesus, you will experience the overwhelming joy of the already and you will experience the pain and tension of the not yet. And that tension is made bearable only by a God who didn't shy away from either. By Jesus, who is victorious savior, a king ushering in a kingdom, and by Jesus, who is a suffering servant and a man of sorrows. So healing's complicated, and it requires a community of spiritual maturity and pastoral sensitivity. Healing is complicated. But finally, healing is not as complicated as we tend to make it. I mean, of course we keep on praying for healing despite a 100% success rate because healing is a sign of the kingdom. And when I preach a sermon and every lost person doesn't come to faith, we don't begin doubting that God wants to seek and save the lost or abandon preaching the gospel altogether. And teaching and healing are both called spiritual gifts in the Bible. Biblically, they're held in the same category. And because healing is a spiritual gift, that means we can grow in both maturity and power when it comes to healing, just like we can in the other gifts, like teaching or service or prophecy. So if you're wondering, is it God's will to heal? Yes, Of course God wills healing, and God will heal all of our embodied pain for good. That's a promise. What we're unclear on is when or how that healing will occur. Is it in this life or is it in the next? Is it through miracle or does it come through suffering? So if the question you're holding is why doesn't or didn't God heal, then that's a much more complicated question. And it's one without a clean, neat and tidy, black and white biblical answer. And it's one we're gonna get into a little bit more in a minute. But for now, let me just say this, that the safest thing about praying for healing is that the God we pray to is good and that he repurposes everything, everything, even our suffering into our redemption. There is nothing you or I will experience this side of eternity that he will not weave into this beautiful tapestry of our redemption. So yes, healing is complicated, but it's not as complicated as we tend to make it. Or if I had to sum all that up in a phrase, I'd probably just go with healing is a sign of the kingdom. So resurrection life, it's a single theme and it gets expressed two ways. First is healing, so now we'll turn to salvation. You see, many people, when they hear that word salvation, they think of altar calls and repeat after me prayers. And I'm not inherently opposed to any of that, but that's also not salvation. Biblically, salvation is life. It is a life, not just a rescue. It includes forgiveness of sins, but it also goes beyond forgiveness of sin to the redeemed life that is won for us by grace. And that is the primary theme of what God, God has come to offer in John's gospel. John chapter one starts with life. John chapter 20 sums up the whole story with life. Dallas Willard says, the message of Jesus himself and of the early disciples was not one just of forgiveness of sins, but rather one of newness of life. 
I am the resurrection and the life, said Jesus. That's a statement of both how and what. I am the resurrection. My sacrificial suffering and victorious resurrection is how you can really come alive. And I am the life. That's about both quantity and quality. It's true that this life I'm offering you will go on forever, but even more profoundly, it is life of such a quality that you'd actually want to live it forever because it's life at its most whole. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this, Jesus asks? Do you believe that I am the way to, to live, to really live, to live like you've been looking for in every other place, to live like I made you to live at first, and to live the way you've seen me live? Do you believe that I can give you life to the full? And do you know that I've made a way for you to know that kind of life forever when I return? And do you know that I've made a way for you to even begin to inhabit that kind of life right now as you await my return? So healing is a sign of the kingdom, but salvation is the substance of the kingdom. The two are joined together biblically. They're held side by side in the ministry of Jesus, in the ministry of the early church, and in this name Jesus gives himself in John 11, because healing is a sign of the kingdom that points to salvation, which is the substance of the kingdom. Healing is a sign that is pointing forward to a kingdom that's coming. And it's coming whether you want it or not, coming whether you see it or not, it's coming for sure and it's coming for good in both senses of the word, meaning it's for your good and it's here to stay. But healing is not the kingdom itself. It's not life to the full and life forever. It's not salvation, it's, only, it's not the substance, it's only a sign. And, and that's why healing is so often tied to salvation in the Bible. Healing is a means to salvation, again and again in the Bible. Uh, healing the body is one way God makes his appeal to the whole person, to the body, soul, and spirit. It's why so frequently, right alongside a healing, you'll see Jesus saying something like, oh, and your sins are forgiven. Because salvation is the substance. It's to enter into the kingdom life here and now. Salvation is the only kind of healing that we get to know in this age and in the age to come. Salvation is right now and it's forever. And that's also why all healing is temporary. Right? Everyone who gets miraculously healed will get sick again, hurt again, their body will wear out with age, and ultimately they will die. The blind man Bartimaeus, he had his eyes opened by Jesus. But then one day his eyes did close for good. And the paralytic who picked up his mat and walked, one day he was laid down and laid down for good. And Lazarus walked out of a tomb, but then he did have a second funeral. See, healing is temporary. The wages of sin is death, and we experience signs of the death awaiting us, here and now, through sickness, disease, injury, and diagnosis. And Jesus has defeated death by his resurrection and we experience signs of resurrection life here and now through healing, through physical, emotional, and spiritual healing. But don't confuse the sign with the substance. Don't confuse a little taste of healing today with the forever feast that's coming. I mean, Jesus was resurrected, death could not hold him. Lazarus was resuscitated. He got more days, but death still was his ultimate fate. But I tend to think about the quality of those days on the other side of his resuscitation. 
I mean, we, we don't know for sure, but I just wonder uh, about those ordinary days after his healing and if they were charged with the ordinary glory of God. Mary and Martha delighting in their brother's presence, slow and present in his company, filled with gratitude to be having this experience or this moment with him. The miraculous glory of God, it's properly stewarded when it opens our eyes to the everyday glory of God, to the sacred quality of this person, of this moment, of this breath. See, the sign healing, it points to the substance, and that's salvation life. That's the way of living that is present to God and present to the person right in front of me. And the miraculous work of healing is properly stewarded when it just opens my eyes to live that salvation kind of life more fully here and now. The point is not the sign. The point is the quality and quantity of life the sign points to. You tracking with me? Now, practically speaking, all of that means at least this much, that every sign should be taken with a grain of salt because it's not the real thing. It's not the full substance, it's just a sign. So relax. I mean, if you get miraculously healed this morning, that would be amazing. But I also might yawn, because I know that you might wake up with a splitting headache tomorrow. My ultimate hope is not resting on physical healing, and yours shouldn't be either. As the Apostle Paul said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. The shortest thing that we're waiting on, it's guaranteed. And, and secondly, it means at least this, that every sign should be eagerly desired and sought with passion and excitement because it's a taste of the kingdom. It's a preview of the greatest promise. It's a sure indicator of the realest thing. My youngest son, Amos, he's gonna turn one in, in just about another month. And my middle son, Simon, asks about the day count almost every day. And it's not because of selfless love for his brother. It's because though I know that all children have a weakness for sweets, this brother is next level. <laughs> all he thinks about is cake. He's in kids ministry right now thinking about cake. And he loves more than anything to help in the kitchen. But it's typically because he has an ulterior motive. I mean, no matter what you're cooking, whether it's pancakes or cookies, or if we go to the next photo, in this case, it was pizza or birthday cake, my man always asks for a taste. So Amos's birthday is coming, and that means that at some point I'll be in the kitchen and cake will be on the menu, and he knows that I, his father, when I am preparing a face that a feast that, that I, his father, have a lot of trouble resisting when he asked for a little taste of that celebration early. And that's what healing is. Healing is a taste of the batter when a cake is coming. And our posture toward healing should be just like Simon's. It should be childlike and filled with wonder and desperate for a taste, wanting it so bad we can't stand it, ready to trace a thousand future cakes just for one little lick off this batter-covered spoon, but sure that however good this taste is, it is not the whole thing. It's only a sign of what is promised to me. It's only a little taste of the cake that is surely coming. Healing is a sign of the kingdom. And so it's not where our ultimate hope lies, but it is a sign of the kingdom. 
And so we should seek it and ask for it now. And we should ask for it with childlike wonder. And we should ask for it like children of a father that we know has a weakness for giving us a taste when we see him cooking something up. So as our practice for this week, we're gonna engage the practice of healing prayer in our Bridgetown communities. This is probably old news to most of you, but we think about church in two essential spheres. The first is church around a stage, that's what we do here on Sundays, and the second is church around a table, when we gather in homes midweek in communities. And around the table, that is where we practice the way of Jesus together in Portland, and that is where the real treasures are. That is the heartbeat of our church. So if you're not in a Bridgetown community, again, Community Basics starts today. It is the way in, and you are invited. But as an additional practice, as Gerald already mentioned, we're also going to be hosting this Wednesday night a worship night and prayer training themed entirely around healing, when we'll worship Jesus. I'll offer a, a, a little bit more teaching, picking up from right here, getting into the how-to of healing prayer, and then we'll pray for healing for anyone and everyone who wants to receive it. So you're invited to that in here on Wednesday night, and if you know someone in need of healing, what an invitation to extend. I am the resurrection and the life. A name of Jesus that is heard at both revivals and funerals. A name for miracles and a name for grief. How do we live in the tension of this story? How do we live in the tension of this name? Hope. We become people of hope. Hope for healing, for, for a God of miracles, for a God who really does bend space and time, superseding the laws of nature in response to the prayers of his children. And hope for salvation, for heaven and earth restored as one, for a redemption that is so full and complete it has to be ushered in by the king himself, for a kind of life that outlives death that's so good that miraculous healing is nothing more than a lick of the spoon when you're sure that a feast is coming on the other side. And the experience of that kind of hope is holding wonder and suffering together. Because wonder is the pathway to healing. Those who are wide-eyed enough to see the person that the sign points to are those who are audacious and faith-filled enough to ask. And that's wonder. It's to see what God is doing and then have the childlike audacity to ask for more. And to take Jesus at his word, ordering my steps uh, according to the word and works of God, it is to eagerly desire every sign of the kingdom. And suffering in our story is not the antithesis to healing. It is the pathway to the greatest healing. Isaiah 53 says, by his wounds we are healed. And from Jesus' suffering came hope, forgiveness, freedom, joy, justice, salvation. There was more healing re released through the suffering of God than ever came through the miraculous works of God. Out of his death came life so full that, that it's not just to be promised eternity, it's to stand right now in this life with one of our feet already in eternity. It's resurrection life. And Jesus then gave his ministry to us, to the church. We are entrusted with a ministry of wonder to carry on the supernatural, miraculous ministry of Jesus, and we are entrusted with a ministry of suffering to carry on the cross-bearing healing ministry of Jesus. 
In the words of Paul in 1 Philippians, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. The church is the people who hold wonder and suffering together. And these days, we tend to see communities of sensationalism or cessationism. Right? We tend to see communities where it's either the signs are all there is and we want to go after the signs. We want to see the signs. Or it's communities of, yeah, the signs were for other people at a different time. The substance is all we have left, so we're just waiting on the substance. And neither of those is the biblical story. There's a sign called healing. And we should desire it. We should eagerly desire it like a kid wanting a lick of the cake batter. And that sign points to a substance so certain that whether you get a taste of that batter or not, it's just a lick off the spoon when you know that a feast is being prepared for you right now. And it's a feast like you've never had before. And it's a feast that will satisfy you for all time. And it has become so common in the church today to hold one without the other. But a church carrying the ministry of Jesus is one who holds wonder and suffering together, pursuing the resurrection life of Jesus through both healing and salvation. So we can pray for healing and we can carry suffering because we know that redemption life springs from both of those. That is how comprehensive his redemption is. And I, maybe I'll just close by speaking honestly and directly into who we are as Bridgetown Church. And I just wanna say that I think that this church has carried a ministry of suffering with incredible maturity. That we are people that know how to steward each other's pain, not perfectly, but we're people that know how to steward each other's pain, know how to walk with Jesus in pain, know how to, to find God's presence in the midst of struggle. And I wonder if for us what it means to mature further into the ministry of Jesus given to us as a church is to grow more into a, a ministry of wonder, to let him widen our eyes, to risk asking and be more afraid of what we're leaving on the table than we are afraid of disappointment to become a church that both stewards pain well but also inherits miracles well.